Hey there, folks. Now that we've got the Game of the Year feature behind us, it's time to return to, I guess, the episode structure proper, so let's dive through all the news I've missed over these past couple episodes, and then get into this next episode of Random Encounter. So Tina Ola's crowdfunding chronicles continues, and the first game I missed was Brock the Investigator. Who's a gator? Who investigates? Get it? Anyways, very reminiscent of uh, the Disney afternoons. Uh, It makes me think of specifically... Uh, tailspin and it just looks really neat cool kind of rpg graphic adventure vibes i'm not quite sure either way check it out this guy left us was another entry and uh, a great looking visual novel so if you're into that uh, go give this one a look the art style is fantastic and hopefully the story is just as grand and then there is beacon pines which is just delightful looking some fantastic looking art design in this one as well uh, and again uh, got a lot of little animal people going on in it. The one-player missions continue, and Caleb Curry has taken a good look at Transistor with the glitch in Transistor's systems, uh, an in-depth kind of breakdown of what does and doesn't work with uh, Transistor. And Josh Lewis, who's brand new to the site, uh, wrote right on the heels of a lot of the announcements we got from Nintendo this past week, and of course getting Skyward Sword coming out is fantastic. And Josh wrote, Don't lose hope for the Legend of Zelda's 35th anniversary celebration just yet. Kind of addressing what uh, he hopes to see and what what fans can hope to still expect that just that announcement wasn't all there was got going on. We're going to get more. There's going to be more things. And I'm so excited as a Zelda fan. And that's where I'm going to leave that. We have another game primer. This one from Wes Illiff, uh, who was on the show last episode. So you want to get into the Shin Megami Tensei series. That's a big one. There's a lot of games in that series, and I know very little about it. I've only just kind of scratched the surface by finally playing a Persona game for the first time with Persona 5 Strikers, so I'm not sure if I'm sold, but this article is great at selling you on it and shows a lot of the finer points of it. Jono mentions it during the episode as well, so give this one a read if you are at all curious about the Shin Megami Tensei series. And then, of course, I just referenced it, but for some reason, if you're under a rock, The RPG Fan Games of the Year 2020 overall awards and the staff awards have been done in a big awesome feature, so go check that out if for some reason you missed it and want to see the best of last year. And so to expedite things, I'm just going to gloss over, we had a whole bunch of reviews come out, some really great game releases like Atelier Rise of 2 and Persona 5 Strikers, and then some smaller little ones like Dragonborn, which is a neat little legit Game Boy title. Like, there's been some really cool stuff released, but I'm not going to go into it because uh, otherwise I'm just going to add another five minutes to this intro. Suffice it to say, our reviewers are kicking it, and you got a lot of great reading ahead of you if you haven't been keeping up on the site. Bundled in there, though, we have a couple previews to highlight uh, that dropped in there. Nikki Fukuri took on the Project Triangle strategy demo. Uh, and gave her impressions on it. I've gotten into it a little bit myself. It's pretty neat. Anyways, check out her thoughts, and uh, let's hope that you have a little bit more work to put into it. Abe Kovalansky is the other one who previews King Arthur Knight's Tale, and this just looks dramatic and awesome, and I don't know. If you're into Arthurian lore and, again, want another great strategy RPG, then go check this one out. And lastly, I'm going to round out the news with the one music review we had from Hilary Andreff. She covered the Celtic Link, themes from The Legend of Zelda, and it's just fantastic. I have this album as well. It sounds great. Her review is solid. Go check out the review and see if this music is for you, and I really hope it is because it's so good to listen to as you have been in the background. Anyways, that's it, listeners. Let's dive into episode 209 of Random Encounter.
listeners, welcome back to yet another episode of Random Encounter. It's me, Greg Delmage, your, uh, arguably, I've been called illustrious as a host some days. I don't know. Am I allowed to call myself that? Whatever. The illustrious? Sure. (laughs) Thank you. My co-host, Jono, is here, as always. Hello. Backing me up, uh, validating my illustriousness. And, uh, we're here to chat, um with some of our staff about diversity in games in a different way than uh, when we had the uh, Pride in Your Party encounter uh, back uh, last, oh gosh, was that uh, March, March, May? I can't remember when that episode was now. Either way, uh, we're going to be looking more at the representation uh, of uh, ethnically in games. I think that says more about the last year than it does about your memory. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Uh, but yeah, we're going to talk about the um, ethnic diversity as explored in games uh, as best as uh, two white guys can, which means we're going to do our best to do a lot more listening to uh, a couple of our teammates here who are more representative of the audience we're looking to reach out to. Um, that's one issue with RPG fan in some regards. I mean, we are, we are a very diverse site, as we were talking about in the pre-show uh, with our panelists, that there is a lot of diversity in terms of gender identity and um, sexual orientation, identity, and all that sort of stuff. We're a volunteer site, so whoever volunteers, that's who volunteers, and uh, we just don't have a lot of uh, ethnic diversity at the site. But we still have a few people who have plenty to say on the matter. Uh, So bringing on, once again, a fan favorite, in my opinion, is Neil Chandran, our PR, HR, no, like, you're not HR, but our PR. It's not our HR. (laughs) (laughs) Mike is HR. Mike is everything R. Oh my gosh, Mike, slow down. Anyways, Neil Chandran, everybody. How's everyone doing? Uh, well, thanks for asking. And that was the moment for you, dear audience, to answer. We'll assume you are doing varying degrees of all right to great, uh, <laughs> since you're listening to us today. And then uh, returning to the site back in September 2020, Dom King uh, has uh, come back to chat with us on the podcast as well. Although, Were you ever on the podcast before this, Dom? Uh, I wasn't on random, no. I was on Retro no. a couple times. Yeah. Gotcha. Welcome to Random. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. You've been uh, voicing your intent to want to get on the show either way since you've come back, and I'm glad to finally have you. Game of the Year episodes were pretty big beasts, and there was a lot going on with those. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's nice to get back to this. It is nice to have a slightly, shall we say, smaller room than we did for the Game of the Year <laughs> episodes. It was it a... It was a packed house, and uh, it's nice to have a, a group of four people who are uh, not all trying to talk over each other with their thoughts. Surprisingly, though, it was actually pretty uh, cohesive, and um, uh, just everyone got on really well in and took the, the cues from each other really well in both episodes that I found for myself doing the editing. There wasn't a lot of overtalk. There wasn't a lot that was getting washed out. In the second episode, there was just a lot of audio issues, but, you know, those can be addressed uh, if with some extra added work and difficulty. It's probably our influence. We're both Canadian. We're both polite, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. But it was still probably one of the hardest episodes I've had to edit next to our uh, video version. Either way. <laughs> we don't talk about that. <laughs> for everybody's benefit. We might go back to it again. At any rate. Uh, yeah, so... Ever since Black Lives Matter really shot diversity in every aspect of life, but for ourselves into the gaming industry, into uh, the front of our minds, 
the conversation has been out there more and more about seeing representation in games uh, ethnically, seeing, uh, for those of uh, us who are non-white, seeing yourself represented in games. And, uh, you know, it's been almost a year since. Uh, we, Jono and I, did our best to sensitively address the issue on an episode with drawing attention to various companies and games and developers, uh, as many as there are out there, which there's not a lot which is endemic of the issue, and we'll get into that. But, uh, you know, a year later, too, I won't lie, there is a, a kind of a bit of lift service that comes from, again, some of the problems that are in the industry as well. There's games on there that looked really neat that I talked about and said, hey, this looks really neat, and I want to try it. And it's been almost a year, and I'm finally trying them, and that's just because so many of like the bigger brand name games and other stuff that gets better publicity or is more obvious uh, has been at the forefront of the of my plate to play and you know I'm only now just getting to these titles to actually say like I did it I tried the thing I've done the thing and I've now come full circle so we'll talk a bit about that as well for those who want to check that out by the way it's one it's episode 190 of random some Thank heavy you. stuff <laughs> and uh, yeah there's a good list of developers and some who have come far with their product and have some stuff to show others are still kind of in the process uh like she dreams elsewhere it's supposed to be coming out this year it's on our list of things to play once it gets launched so here's hoping uh we'll have a review of that and i got some stuff that i'm going back to that i'm trying to fill in with review holes as well uh but yeah true and and like everything else many of the some of the products that we were talking about some of the games and things uh were likely delayed because of covid just like everything else in the world yeah um so not an easy time it's not an easy time and it's not an easy time for uh developers or people who need to be able to work together um so <laughs> the products that haven't the products that haven't been released yet there's a good chance they might be released next year and here's the hope right yeah so yeah like uh like many of us you know after black lives matter made waves you know a lot of communities like ourselves at RPG Fan, did our best to show our solidarity and share content to kind of help raise awareness. And then you've had a lot of big companies who donated to causes, organizations, or created funding programs. And uh, yeah, like a year later, how are those doing? You know, you get companies like Riot Games, who are one of the companies that made um, a program like the Underrepresented Founders Program. And they also have like complete transparency where they released their numbers of how they've grown and been trying to diversify their company over the years. So that's really cool, but I feel like a lot of other companies have kind of gone a bit quiet. Um, well, at the same time, I think it's because cause, probably because the companies themselves aren't making that much headway. With, like, you know, with Black Lives Matter bringing this... I mean, it hasn't been that long since Black Lives Matter... Um, or since the... Since, Everything happened. Yeah. And um, I think companies are just waiting it out, I think, before they can, like, you know, show more concrete numbers to the public. That they, can, they, they can say, like, oh, we are, this is, these are, like, actual, like, significant percentages that we're showing, not just, like, one or two percent increases over the past couple of months. And that's fair. Yeah. But I would also argue that would probably still help in showing good faith. And I yeah, think, definitely. you know, they may be trying. Mm-hmm. But as, you know, so many of us know, and even people at the forefront of these causes know, it's uh, not something that's going to happen overnight, even let alone in a year. So, There's also the concern that many of these companies 
might be doing what companies do, which is they pay lip service to the uh, to the issue. They they send a, send a release saying, "Oh, we are looking for more uh, black talent. We're looking for more uh, minority talent," and then they just don't really change their hiring practices or do anything because they are putting money that the issue is going to either blow over or uh, other things are going to occupy minds. And uh, thankfully, it seems like that happened less in 2020 than it had in previous years. But I yeah, suspect that there fad, are... but still. I suspect there are still many, many companies that are having uh, some significant... I don't, I don't want to say conversations, but the conversations stifled within the organizations themselves because they're hoping this just goes away. That's not a, that's not something that is a good thing. Obviously, it's something that uh, needs to be uh, addressed. But I, I mean, the reality is that from especially from what I saw on Twitter and things like that after after the summer of. 2020 a lot of people made a lot of noise about how they are going to be adding uh adding black developers they're going to be highlighting products they're going to be doing a lot of things and then nothing really changed too much and maybe you're right greg maybe it is just it it went a little ways and it'll go a little ways in the future but i i don't know i'm feeling a little bit uh discouraged about it to be honest and it may be the covid thing too like you Mm -hmm. said like and dom's right like it it's possibly incremental at this point so yeah i feel like if we look at games released like two three years from now like after let's say like roughly like a full development cycle i feel like that could give us a better view of exactly um how much these companies did during this during this period where black lives matter really came to the forefront yeah it'd be a lot more indicative you're right Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm well, uh, in reading about all of this and uh, just brushing up so I wasn't completely talking out of my uh, white, cis, male privilege butt uh, for this episode. Uh, <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> well, in general as well, but uh, specifically for this episode, because when we're talking about these matters, it's delicate enough, delicate enough as it is, and I'm sure I'm going to misspeak, unfortunately, and I, uh, again, I'm, I'm approaching all this with the best of intentions, and I welcome any constructive criticism. But I am doing my part to also not put the labor on others to educate me that I should be educating myself. That being said, uh, uh, resident uh, writer, awesomeness, um, social media person Eva Padilla uh, shared a great article by Ash Parrish over at Kotaku that was talking about the how diversity is shaping up in the AAA gaming uh, industry. And how the industry is looking to grow, where she hopes it's kind of going to go. Um, and yeah, she raises some really great points. Um, and a couple of the things that really stood out to me, at least right off the bat, that I wanted to ask uh, Neil and Dom about yourselves, and uh, to a lesser degree myself and Jono. Um, one thing she does talk about is uh, that I hadn't really thought of myself because of my privilege was character creation. And it's great that now there are so many games that allow for character creation so you can try and make a reflection of what you're, what, what you are, how you feel in the game. Uh, some that do it well and others to a lesser degree. Cough. Cyberpunk 2077. Cough, cough. No. But um, they tried, but they still missed the mark based on what they were touting. But 
One thing she did bring up that I hadn't even thought of, and I read another study that kind of looked at this as well, called Exploring the Perceptions of Race on Video Game Covers, uh, where they looked at the 20 of the best-selling games from 2010 to 2015 and put them through like a test subject group, uh, ultimately coming away that there was an inadequate representation in cover art. And that's the thing that Ash Parrish brought up, that yeah, with all this character creation tool set you have and trying to allow people to see themselves represented in the screen and how they want to play... Why not translate that to the marketing? Just because, because because all the marketing still comes out very whitewashed. And again, I never thought about that because I'm that privileged audience. So I just was like, cool, that's a cover. I see it and it's a thing. But it's a valid point. Like, why isn't there, you know, uh, Black Shepherd and White Femme Shep, you know, for example, right? Uh, like, is this something you two have noticed? Any of you have noticed, I guess, growing up and seeing game cover art and stuff like that or just seeing how character creation is handled in games like how do you feel it handles your perception of the play world (laughs) it is a complex issue especially considering how just diverse the audience of gaming is like i mean i remember back when i was a kid playing nintendo it was always just okay it's just a toy for kids and whatever. And it's now we're seeing okay that we're seeing people of all ages are playing games. And it used to seem like, all right, either had Japan, Europe, and North America as the big gaming markets. And now we're seeing more and more game, more and more gaming development in Africa and South America. And, and so gaming has evolved to encompass the global audience but that's not quite being reflected in the games that are being played just yet i mean some of the stats are like in the u.s only like seven percent of like the companies themselves are represented in like a black or seven percent i think was the latinx community as people who develop games two percent were black but the thing is the majority of gamers apparently these days are from those communities so you'd think they would be marketing to those communities. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because even looking at even uh, looking at the way I grew up and uh, for back for background. So the audience. Yes, please. Yeah. Give so us the that. audience, you know, understand understands my perspective. Um, let's see. My family's from India. I was actually born in the Netherlands and spent about 10 years of my life there before moving to the U.S., so even That's though such a metalhead, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, so it's almost like, at the risk of sounding politically incorrect, my entire growing up was basically being the quote-unquote brown kid in the white neighborhood. So, even looking at various other multimedia whether we're talking video games, comic books, TV shows, it everything was very eurocentric. So it was always okay. The protag, you know, protagonists do not look like me. <laughs> well, that gets hard too in like make believe play even growing up, yeah. I guess. Um, did you ever found that kind of gate kept for you or where everyone was everyone pretty open to that? Not to throw uh, words in your oh, mouth. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it's like oh yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, if I was a kid drawing myself in like a fantasy world or something 
oh yeah, I probably I probably would not have colored my face. I probably would not have used a brown crayon on my face. Because, I mean, because, you know, it was, I was always the oddball. I was always different. And, and all I wanted was just to be, uh, you know, normal white kid like everyone else. It's only, it's only as I got older that I really embraced my uniqueness and my identity and, uh, and was your cultural identity like really uh, worked into your home life or did your family like more or less heavily uh, North Americanize? Well, you know what? It was it was a bit of a mix. I mean, obvi- I mean, like I always grew up, you know, knowing about, you know, the Indian cultural traditions, the mythology and all of that. But when we were living in the Netherlands um just the general lifestyle of Europe i you know we were there was a lot of those values and all of that that was that i that was kind of ingrained in me and then even coming to the US you know there was a whole different value set and everything there like for example and for example yeah absolutely uh, yeah cuz for example you know when you're in school after you come back from Christmas break, everyone does show and tell with all the stuff they got for Christmas. And, and so of course we adopt my family, we adopted Christmas in the secular sense, because you know what I, cause I mean, I stuck out like a sore thumb in my neighborhood anyway, just for the way I just, just, you know, right. for the way I looked. So it's like, you know what? So my parents figured, you know what? We don't want this kid to like be a complete odd one out. So, you know what? We'll do Christmas. He can still, that I could still, you know, come to the classroom, do my show and tell of the cool stuff I got. And at least, you know, be able to kind of connect with, with the peers that I was going to be sharing the community with. But yeah, and I I also definitely identify with Neil on certain parts because um for my background, um I was I was so my father's a diplomat or was a diplomat, so oh, he moved okay. around a lot. Yeah. And I was actually born in Mexico and then I lived in Korea until kindergarten. And then from primary to middle school, I spent, I was in Germany and then I went to high school in the States and now I'm attending college in Korea. And that's so cool, but also so challenging. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, I remember very distinctly, it was like growing up, um, I wasn't, I wasn't quite Korean. Like we spoke Korean at home, but uh, we like every summer break we'd go back to Korea to like visit relatives and my grandparents and stuff, and I was like my Korean wasn't good enough to converse with the people there. So I mean it's better now, but back then it was just so I felt out of place in that way. But at the same time, I was an Asian kid, and even though I did go to like an international school, it was still very um, predominantly with other white kids so um 
yeah, it was, I was, I, how should I say? I, I didn't know what I was or like who I was, what I should be, like what parts, yeah. what parts do I identify with? What parts do I not identify with? And like, it wasn't until, it wasn't until I came to Korea and I went to the military and I like, I had a lot of conversations there that I started to come to terms with, um, with essentially, yeah, with my background, essentially. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I, I mean that, and yeah, and that point completely spoke to me as well. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen the uh, Netflix show, uh, Never Have I Ever, but there's the one part where the main character, Davy is frustrated because she says, some people, to some people, I'm too Indian. To others, I'm not Indian enough. And so that struggle was real for me. Yeah, definitely. And perhaps it's because um, I was so willing to or trying to fit into Germany or into the German culture at the time because, you know, I'm, I'm just a kid. I want to, like, do what all the cool kids are doing. But within, like, through that lens, I don't think I really ever noticed or cared too much about like going back to like the game covers thing like who or what was on the game cover even though now that i think about it, it was very predominantly um you know like white people or just some dude doing cool stuff on the cover not without much variation right and yeah i guess it depends on where it was marketed to as well because obviously Obviously, the, the Europe marketing and North American marketing, yeah, would be heavily favored to what they think is the predominant demographic, which would be the white population, I guess. Um, but one thing you brought up in the pre-show that has been interesting, though, uh, to this whole thing, because so much development started and comes out of Japan, there is a lot of uh, Asian-centric characterization as well. But does that represent all Asians? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> but I, but I, you know, I just appreciate that at least some aspect of Asia is sort of in the mainstream. Fair of like Western media, at least. Yeah, I mean, and uh, and I'm hoping it's a step in the direction of realize of at least the wider world realizing that Asia is big. You can't just lump yeah all that all of this together as simply Asian because I mean you know because let's see Japanese culture is very different from Korean culture it's very different from Chinese culture it's very different from Tibetan very different from South Asian cultures which include India Pakistan Bangladesh Sri Lanka and even within all those countries there's so many diverse cultures like even within India itself it's like what is Indian food? It's a big country with a whole bunch of culinary traditions throughout. Like, mm -hmm. like even um, like the uh, other like Indian families in the temple group that um we belong to. You know, they came from a different part of India. So of course, so the food that we would get at their house was very different than the food that you know my mom was making. Definitely. And that's exactly and, it, yeah. yeah. So go ahead, Dom. And, but um, speaking from the Korean perspective, at least 
from um from what I've from what I've experienced so far, it's that like I don't think Korea is quite at the how do you call it? Um, so Korea, Korea basically wasn't a first world country until the nineties, <laughs> pretty much. So, right. um, it's been like, what, 31 years, 30, 30 some odd years since like, we've had like a proper functioning economy and like a proper functioning democracy. And I feel that, um, though we've like grown economically, like society hasn't caught up to that part yet. So like in terms of games here, people here are still just focused on just making the most money possible which is mobile gotcha games yeah. so like i feel korean um i feel like in a couple i'm confident that like in like a decade or two um i feel like the korean gaming scene could become more mainstream like the japanese like the jrpgs and the japanese fighting games have become yeah because their film scenes i just blow up yeah oh yeah korean film scenes definitely it's insane. they're so good yeah, oh, I, hate yeah it. I definitely <laughs> agree on that <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like the gaming scene just needs a just needs a bit more time to catch up. Well, yeah, I remember being blown away when Ragnarok Online came out, and I was like, "This is Korean. Koreans make games. What? This isn't Japanese." <laughs> and again, it's just from my perspective, my white privilege in two thousand two when it came out, where I was just like, yeah. "This is baffling to me. Weird." Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, I don't blame you. It's because like Korean Korean society is still very much it's very much focused on success being measured in as like a in terms of money right so even if if your game is critically acclaimed and like it's lauded by all the critics as like the greatest the greatest one of the greatest games of all time if it doesn't sell well in korea that's like not considered a success (laughs) so people so people working with like that that kind of mentality still which is understandable um already in an industry that's so cutthroat about that whole what what is a fiscal success as well (laughs) yeah exactly and it's it i I just feel like people need to people need some time to grow out of the mindset now that korea has achieved some you know level of economic stability and i hope i really hope that is the case dom i was curious when you said that um when you said that it's it's success is measured financially more than anything else is that Mm -hmm. within korea itself or would that be internationally like which would be more important shall we say um that's period that's interesting because um let's just take korean cinema for example like if yeah like let's say a film did incredibly well within korea but did not do particularly well in the international market but there was a film that Mm -hmm. did incredibly well in the international market just out of curiosity which do you believe would be held to a higher esteem by that measure uh i would say probably i mean unless the film wins international accolades like parasite did Mm. um i i think the crew the film that does better regionally within korea would be better regarded because then it's also um more well known i wonder if it would be the same thing then in terms of video game and the development of the video game industry there if it if it needs to be homegrown literally homegrown and then something will break out so to speak to the international market yeah i mean uh korea the most 
successful Korean game to date, I guess, is PUBG. Well, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. But, um, the thing is, like, gaming in Korea is still a very maligned pastime. Ah. It's, it's, it's still a very, like, it's, not productive. It's, it's weird because, because we have net cafes, which are basically huge, like, huge hubs of just PC, of high-end PCs that people go in to play games on. And they're everywhere. They're everywhere in Korea. And they're super cheap. And But at the same time, like, the culture is still so... Um, still very much against gaming. Just as, like Even just as, like, a healthy pastime. As, like, a stress reliever. They're very much... It's very much um, against it. So, yeah. And I feel like the one way people try and, like, justify, like, hey, like... Um, Gaming isn't just a, you know, just a waste of time. Look at look at how much money I'm making, and I feel like that is one of the, you know, the 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 social back and forths that like Korea still has going on right now, which yeah, which makes its current gaming development scene not quite exciting, I guess, from a creative <laughs> standpoint. Right. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, didn't know that. It's cool. They have. To, yeah, they have to filter through everything, like the focus tests. Yeah, to deem what's going to be fiscally uh, viable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Out of curiosity, what? Do you, what? I mean, I, I know I'm asking you these questions as if you should know the answers offhand, and I don't mean it this way. But what would you say is probably mm-hmm. the most uh, popular gaming platform there? Probably, I think it's either the PS4 or the Switch. Even more so than mobile. Um. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I. You know, I, I. I correct myself. I probably mobile is first, and then it's either the PS4 or the Switch. Mm-hmm. But if people could, um, just yeah, if people could afford, or maybe if Netcafes didn't exist, I feel like people would have a lot more gaming PCs as well. Hmm. Oh right, yeah, but there's no demand. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel that we do have at RPG fan, and I mean I've talked about this in the past, and I am very firmly uh, in this place where we do have a bit of a blind spot where it comes to mobile gaming and how popular it is because everyone has mm-hmm. a phone, everyone has that platform. Therefore, that is where a lot of the money is. Um, yeah, definitely. And I feel that's where a lot of the a lot of the game development would happen in. Uh, in uh, countries especially that don't really have large uh, already established gaming industries because again that is where the money is online gaming on phones with all the joys of of loot boxes and microtransactions (laughs) well exactly and I mean the infrastructure is already there that everyone has a phone anyways whereas you know how much less cost effective it is to ship in consoles ship in and then localize imported games and such. That makes rest make sense, yeah. Exactly. Um, to loop it around to kind of where I was talking about, and thank you again both for sharing and uh, being so honest with your background and where you're where you've come from in terms of emotionally, developmentally, and such. I appreciate the honesty. Um, with growing up, then, uh, and not just in RPGs, just gaming in general. Um, you both spoke to the fact uh, that you didn't really see yourself as much in media or, you know, you were just trying to adapt to um, the local norms to fit in. Um, 
so yeah like you said neither of you really made much note of it until thinking about it just now about how you there is not much representation on the box art so to speak and what about in the games themselves like what are some of your formative game experiences and what were those like for you or uh, were you were you looking for yourself in there did you care did you just supplant yourself as as an analog for the character like how did that all work Hmm. you know what i mean for me you know when i was playing games as a kid I wasn't exactly looking for myself in the game. I was just, okay, all right, this is Mega Man. I'm getting him to jump and shoot and defeat all these things. So I wasn't necessarily, like, so I was more or less nonplussed. Okay, all right, you know, this uh, this is this character. You know, it doesn't need to look like me or whatever. But... But, you know, as I got, but then as I got older, um, especially when I was in college um, and like, and people started asking me more about my ethnic background and, and I was, and cause growing up, I was, I just did not want to be the weirdo Indian kid. I wanted to be like, you know, the normal American kid, like everyone else. And that was a bit. And I would be like rebellious against my culture and stuff. And then as more people asked about it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is something interesting. And and in terms of video games, I will never forget, I was playing Persona 2 Eternal Punishment and uh, I was, and there was, and I was, and I encountered um, these beings called the Gandharvas and, and my mom walked into the room and she goes, does that say Gandharvas? And I said, yes. And she says, would you like me to tell you about them? They are very significant in Hindu mythology. And I said, oh, neat. Yeah. And I said, sure. And she was telling me how how they and their female um, equivalents, the Apsaras, were served as liaisons between uh, mortals and, and the deities. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So... So not so, so of course seeing something from you know my culture represented in a cool form in a video game, and and that actually opened communication between my mom and I and made me want to explore my cultural background a bit more. That was cool, and that's actually a big reason why I became a super fan of the Shin Megami Tensei series because it was showing. Like icons from you know my culture that I had initially spurned as a kid as something super cool and and I was like wow as I got older I was like I like being Indian I, this is this is neat yeah. and interesting I was like you know if I, and it was like oh I can I'm embracing my uniqueness now. That's really neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of that, uh, I guess, again, and that's something we all will talk about, but just that kind of, the the representation's not quite in the forefront, but it's there somewhere. It's, it's even like in Final Fantasy with Shiva, in that strange representation of that. Like, there's a lot of appropriation yeah. Yeah. that happens, Especially because sure. Final Fantasy's Shiva is not at all like the Hindu god. Not that I claim to know much about it, but I do know enough to know that is very true. 
Um, yeah, yeah what um, for you, Dom? Yeah, for me, um, yeah, similar. My story is kind of similar to Neil's in that, like, when, when growing up, I like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty young relative to the rest of the rest of the staff on RPG fam. (laughs) (laughs) That's another diversity topic um, in and of itself. (laughs) But essentially, I I I grew up in the era where, um, you know, where first-person shooters were just like supreme rulers of the gaming industry for like like for most of my um teenage years so i was playing a lot of those games and i didn't really think i was just like oh wow i get to hold a gun and i get to shoot people on screen that's kind of cool but um definitely one of the i think my most um formative gaming experience was in mass effect 2 and that was like i think that was the first game i played where i could really like customize the way my character looked and then actually be able to see them in game because mass effect's a third person shooter right and and i'd be playing and yeah my mom would also just be sitting on the couch behind me at times and she'd be like oh this character looks like you this time and i'd be like yeah isn't that isn't that really cool and um yeah and i feel like that was definitely one of the first times where i you know, appreciated being able to um, play as myself, essentially. And yeah, I feel like that definitely made me, um, uh, how, how do I put it? Or that, that was one of my first steps towards RPGs and then also very much looking at character creators in them to now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I loosely uh, threw that out there actually um again in the pre-show because uh, you know you both work at rpg fan you both were uh, i believe fans of rpg fan before coming to the site as well and therefore uh, fans correct. of rpgs exactly <laughs> exactly uh, <laughs> so you know and don uh, that's uh, basically speaks to the example or question i was asking in the pre-show of just do you find yourself attracted to the rpg genre because you're able to find or at least fabricate more representation or something more that speaks to you as a person um not necessarily ethnically charged yeah. but i feel like in some ways it, it, it rpgs definitely make it easier for you to insert yourself into the story and be involved not that like games without character creators can't do that but rpgs have their very or character creators and rpgs in general definitely give them that very unique edge in terms of immersion and storytelling and i feel like even rpgs that don't have a character creation system the fact that it's a fantasy world i i always felt like you know what okay this is a world that maybe i better fit in than the real world cuz i was like all right i was always cuz is for me my favorite toy as a kid was always my imagination. So it was like, so I was all like, you know what? I don't fit. I don't seem to fit in in the real world. But you know what? Maybe I would fit in in this in these crazy fantasy worlds. So, so I got drawn to RPGs, even if you know my avatar character didn't necessarily look like me. I could feel like you know what? Maybe this is a world that I could belong in. 
because it's a crazy fantasy world with all kinds of crazy fantasy beings and like, oh, all right, maybe there's a place for me there. That's fascinating to me because I like I relate to that in the sense that some people play video games because they are power fantasies and there's not a whole lot of story or character really attached to that. But like I agree with you, Neil, when I was a child, one of the reasons I was attracted to RPGs and adventure games was because I could escape into these worlds. It wasn't a power fantasy. It was just a fantasy where I could be in another world. I could be somebody else. I could be in many ways, if it was like a character created RPG, I could be whoever I wanted to be. Exactly. And, and even like before character creation and such, uh, you know, the limitations of graphics, I, I would argue too, it was a lot easier to, if you weren't looking at like the core game art or whatever, which again, without the internet, it was not widely available unless you forked out the dough to uh, like for a Prima strategy guide or something. Um, you, you could, you could fudge the details a bit to also envision yourself as any number of the characters that you named yourself in as, as the cast. Like I could very easily be like, well, I'm Bart's, you know, but Bart's was probably designed, intended to be more representative of Japanese, but also Japanese culture, uh, as I understand, has also had a lot of North Americanisms inserted in their, in their media as well. Cause it seems cool. So very much Bart's could have been their view of a North American hero, traditional European hero as well. But a lot of Amano's art makes him seem more Asian. I'm not sure. But it was very easy just to look at those little Final Fantasy V sprites and just imagine me and my friends as those characters, for example, or in Final Fantasy VI or whatever, right? See, I find that, that that's something I... This is not something that's... It'll, it's, it's like retroactively being ashamed of yourself when you were not even consciously aware that this was an issue. <laughs> but, like, it never occurred to me that the characters in Final Fantasy 2 or Final Fantasy 3 weren't white. Uh, it never occurred to me. Because many of them had blonde hair. Um, or, I guess in Tara's case, green hair. Um, but I guess it was just the limitations of the art, and I wasn't really ex- I wasn't really exposed to anime or anime styles. I just assumed yeah, that they privilege. were white as a kid. Except for, like... And even then, I remember this, I remember it blew my mind when I discovered that General Leo was black, because his character sprite was clearly white. And I guess that's... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but like, and also his his artwork is a, his skin is a weird color, but I mean, as I understand it, General Leo is black, and was, you know, that's positive representation, but it's kind of sad that that was taken away, because they were like, let's make the sprite white, I guess? Yeah, weird. (laughs) I did not know that. And yeah, I guess it is kind of in the in the art um, a little bit there too, and like and even like Yang, you know, it's very obvious with the name. But again, you can change them all, right? And even his character portrait doesn't look that whatever culturally obvious as they were trying to make his name. Mm. I mean, there are there are certain exceptions. Like Cyan was clearly dressed, and the way he, the way uh, the character was um, presented in the game was from like an Asian culture. But yeah, not specifically Bushido. Japanese, but yeah. So I mean, I got that from it. But characters like Locke or uh, Cecil, or it's certainly Edgar, um, who I assume was French, but there's something about Figaro always just seemed very French to me. <laughs> and he's such a ladies' man. <laughs> no, I seriously, in my mind, I always pictured him and his brother as like Frenchmen. <laughs> And that, I really like that interpretation so and, much, and, and I want that to be headcanon. And Figaro, in my mind, <laughs> Final Fantasy III, Figaro, Figaro is the equivalent of, like, 
Paris, France, except it's in a desert. Anyway, sorry, I got I got really <laughs> off topic there. Fils d'un little... sous-marin. That'd be great. Uh, anyway, yeah, I get yeah exactly. But I get it. Like again, it's the same for me. Like it didn't occur to me until much later, growing up and having more exposure and intelligence in general, and. Uh, and more openness to other cultures to realize, oh, yeah, a lot of these are probably rooted in this. I mean, and you're not wrong. Like, Locke was probably intended to be an European analog. I would be shocked if he was intended to be Japanese at the gate or not, or Asian in some way. But it could have been as well, for all we know. But it's, yeah, we we, we couldn't have known better. That's the interesting thing I find about anime art styles. Like, let's just take, for example, you know, the first anime I was ever exposed to, and I suspect the first anime that a lot of uh, North American kids were exposed to was Sailor Moon, who is a, you know, yes, who's blonde and her friend, like Sailor Venus is also blonde hair, blue eyed. And it just, but they're Japanese. Clearly they're Japanese. They live in Japan. But at the same time in my childhood mind, I never really put the connection together that these are, these were Japanese people because they and were. And it's the localization too, right? Yeah. And the localization as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, everything's confusing when you're a child <laughs> and that's a big conversation yeah. within that too that like if we had Derek Heensbergen on and i've seen uh i think he wrote his thesis i think about this i think it was him or he shared somebody else's i cannot remember now if it was his writing or not but just the idea that it, it is it's hard for localizers to decide where do you keep the core traditional japanese aspects of the original work as opposed to what do you North Americanize for the audience without losing the integrity of of the story or like where does it serve the story, where does it not kind of thing. And it's, yeah, it's interesting to see how those things kind of get altered and censored. And I was the same way with Sailor Moon, even though there's a literal like Japanese temple that Sailor Mars lives and works at the same time. There's a solo party that's like, eh, but they're North American girls. But yeah, they're not. They, yeah, but it, it, they, no. they live in the same area as Phoenix Wright and uh, they all go eat hamburgers. Yeah, because... Yeah. <laughs> And when you talk about this, the first game that immediately came to my mind was the uh, original Persona game, which was first released in, uh, I think it was the late 90s as Revelations Persona. I mean, we all know it as, you know, Shin Megami Tensei Persona. And, and, you know, we know based on Persona 3 how Japanese it was, but in the North American version... It was completely Americanized. Like, the main character sprite, his long black hair was made to short red hair. I mean, and the town of Mikage-cho was changed to Lunar Vale. And and, uh, the craziest (laughs) thing of all was one of the characters in the Japanese version, his name is Masao Mark Inaba, and he's... Basically, like your Japanese kind of skate punk type kid wears a knit cap. And for the North American localization, they made him a black kid with a baseball cap. And, and, which I guess that's sort of a step in the right direction, but also what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, a kind of step in the right direction, but his dialogue was, was, I mean, I hate to use, you know, such a meme term, but, his dialogue was cringe, saying things like, don't be trying to play me. I'm like, this doesn't sound right. It was just tokenism. Yeah, pretty much. And and uh, one, of, one of the ways he contacts demons is 
by dancing and Mark danced crazy became whatever the late nineties or late nineties version of a meme was. And I'm like, ah, I know. Right. And it's like, and I'm like, I'm not quite buying that this is North America. Cause you know, these kids are clearly wearing Japanese high school uniforms, you know, but of course, <laughs> I don't know, like I said, all the Japanese kids were given American names. And and then I remember, I think was on uh, PSP, they did the, re, they had the, like, remaster of the game with the full Japanese with, because it came after Persona 3, and, and culturally at the time, you know, gamers had been more exposed to Japanese culture, anime was more popular, and people were more aware, whereas back in like the 80s and 90s a lot of japanese developers felt they had to they had to americanize games i mean the term we the politically incorrect term we used to use back then was they whitewashed the games for the american audience yeah and that's exactly it and that's um <laughs> <laughs> sorry when you said that my mind instantly went back to um ah oh, crap what's the it was the it was the fake American names in a baseball in an NES baseball game. <laughs> Bad news baseball. Uh, Sleeve McDickle and Jeremy Grid and <laughs> Willie Dustis. It's uh, Mike Tuck. It's, I'll, I'll send you guys this. It's it's great. But uh, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people listening <laughs> would uh, would remember it was just a, it was just a it's a Japanese baseball game where they localized it and they just had to come up with a bunch of American names. And uh, I, I, I guess that these were their best guesses. Oh, we'll take it. Incidentally, if anyone wants to learn more about uh, Shimagami Tensei and the earlier, the the origins of the Persona series, we have a ridiculously mm. great article right now on RPG Fan about it. Read it. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a West West did such an amazing job of this article. As West does. Um. But yeah, though you're you're bringing up like the tokenism aspect. I think that's now where the industry is trying to figure things out, and where it's still struggling with uh, beyond the representation on the development side. It seems to be just with the representation side uh, of how not to relegate, you know, its its uh, representative characters to just being sidekicks, the help, or whatever. Uh, that instead of being the protagonist, but then also not just making them be a token character. Um, you know, the outer, uh, the outer worlds has uh, some great examples of characters who are actually fully well-rounded, not just tokens. You know, you have Nyoka, um, who's uh, a black monster hunter character, and then you have Pavardi, uh, who also represents the asexuality community. Uh, as an engineer and is of Southeast Asian descent. Uh, Neil, have you played The Outer Worlds or is it just uh, no, I, Dom? No, I have it? not played okay. it. Oh, uh, no. But I've it's heard good things about if you, it. If you, liked, if you like New Vegas, follow New Vegas, you know, when you want more of that, well, this should be the game to play. <laughs> <laughs> but you've touted how great Pavardi is as a character, Jono. Uh, and again, this is again through your own privilege and lens. You can't really, I guess, speak to too much of her cultural descent. Aspect. I adored her. I mean, ignoring that she was just a great character. She was endearing. She was wonderful. She has a gigantic friggin' hammer that she slams people with. Um, she is by far the most brilliant person on the ship. Uh, I mean, 
it, it, she's a great character. It, actually, you're right. The Outer Worlds is a is a pretty good. Uh, is a it, there are some there's some decent representation in the Outer World. There's also, I mean, in Fallout games, there's some decent representation as well. Um, which I guess, which the Outer Worlds was inspired by, like Fallout Four. There's everyone's favorite, um, everyone's favorite uh, Minuteman, Preston Garvey. Um, but there's also uh, X688, a courser from the Institute, um, and of course, you know the character development tools in that you can you can make your character look however you want. You can choose, I guess, whether or not mm-hmm. they're male or female, because back then that was, you know, that was that was as far as the character development tools went in terms of gender identity back when that game was created. Yep. But we, and then you see it in Cyberpunk as well, but that's the thing, like, it's either they do a good job of just being like, well, we did it, but then you're just kind of tick- ticking a box by just throwing a character in there and just being like, See, look, they're black, but you've just put the skin on some generic whatever character, which on the one hand, cool. Like, And this is, I guess, the question I have for Dom and Neil. Like, Do you prefer where they kind of take a more... Are you okay with it? Is it enough to see colorblind casting, uh, to use a term that's used in film, where it doesn't matter, the character isn't written as a race, it's just whoever is the best fit for the role, uh, and that's fine. Uh, but then some of them obviously don't get enough to them. Or do you prefer to see things where, you know, does every character need, not necessarily need a struggle and need, a, you know, a complete monologue backstory as to why they are the, the race or gender or whatever it is they represent. But just, do, do you need more of that to make those characters matter? Or in the case of, like, Hades, where it has, like, great representation in the gods, which were Greek gods and traditionally have always been viewed as having to be Greek, but then Supergiant had this great approach where they're just saying, like, well, no, they just, they just because the Greeks worshipped them doesn't necessarily mean they had to be Greek uh, and chose to put a lot more diversity into that cast. But it's it's trying to say something by shaking up the status quo. So, like, yeah, does it is it enough just for them to be present or does it need to say something? That is actually a very complicated issue because... yes yes, especially considering the type of story that you know the creators are looking to tell like like one of my favorite tv shows ever is the magicians and uh in the and for example in the books one of the main characters named penny was this you know pudgy white punk dude whereas on the show he's this somewhat surly Indian dude and I feel like the penny on the show is just worlds better than the penny in the book not just you know because he's Indian but because you know the actor Arjun Gupta brings so much depth to that character and the writers just and I love that the casting directors just decided to you know what this guy like you know what this guy's Penny. Well, you know, let's make yeah. let's make it work. Or even one of the other characters, Margot. Her actress, Summer Bishil, is half Indian, half Latina, and and the sh- and it's like, in a sense, I mean, her ethnicity. It's like you know what? She's just badass, badass woman. But then on the other hand, when you were talking about the check boxes, I don't necessarily want to just see like you know a 
like we're saying, a token character put in just to fulfill a I'm so trendy checkbox. Like, for me, I feel like if you're going to put a South Asian character into a game, I want them to, you know, be represented in, in like a genuine manner. Like, you were mentioning uh, Outer Worlds, something. Okay, I now want to play that game. I want to, I want to, I want to meet, I want to meet this character, especially since she sounds badass, and in Hindu mythology, Bhadav, the goddess Parvati, who was uh, the Lord, who was uh, Lord Shiva's wife, is herself an insanely badass woman, so, <laughs> so on the one hand, it's, um, it's like, all right, if you're casting characters, you want you know, the best actor who's going to do it. But then it's like, if, again, if you have the best actor is a different ethnicity than the character from the source material, which I look at Penny from The Magicians, it's, you know, you got to give it that little something extra to, I don't know, I feel like, I feel like I'm just not making much sense. I'm just kind of stream of conscious thing here because <laughs> well, it's, 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 okay. it's complicated to think about. Absolutely. It's mm-hmm. definitely a bit of a uh, throw the spotlight on you question. Uh, and so I totally respect wherever it is you need to come from, but you've, you've touched on some valid points. So don't, don't fret. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, um, I feel like it all comes back to what, what's the story the director wants to tell. And um, if the character if the characters like fit into that story or not, like I'm honestly, um, I'm more about accurate representation than um, you know like representation for representation's sake. Yeah, than just tokenism. Like if the if the director is like, okay, we're going to make a game that is set in like ancient China, right? There's makes sense for everybody to be Chinese or something. Like Matt Damon. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> We don't talk about that. But, uh, <laughs> but um yeah it make like I just want game I just want games and their stories to make sense within their own context. And perhaps like it's because so many of the directors and developers these days are still, you know, just white people. And, you know, they just haven't had um quite the exposure to the different stories and different cultures to yeah, tell right the other know. stories yeah and i don't blame them for that like i'd rather have them write stories that they know are good and are make sense within um the world that they're trying to create rather than have this okay um we need to diversity is the hot topic right now so we just need to you just need to make a game with an all-Asian cast, or we need to make a game with an all-black cast. Yeah, you end up with characters like and... Original Barrett from Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, so if anything, I'm saying I want um, yeah, accurate representation. And I feel once, um, you know, maybe Asian people and, like, South Asian people and black people, like, more of those people get into the positions of where they can like direct the game story or like write a game story um that we'll you'll see more of these uh 
mm-hmm. that we'll see better representation. Yeah. yeah, which is a bigger conversation than we can really do in like give do justice in the hour ish that we have of yeah because that all goes into <laughs> you know the real issue of uh, of systemic racism in the education system in the job market and all that with even mm-hmm. getting them in the door to tell those stories and by not seeing it in there anyways or seeing that you're not getting a chance why even bother pursuing that as a career right so that's right. a mm-hmm. whole other thing but yeah. it, exactly it's yeah. still endemic <laughs> of the problem um you know there's in one of my reading uh dr kishona gray who's a professor at u of illinois had mentioned that people draw their inspiration from their experience and that's why we still have a problem with representation you know the, so there's there's like i mentioned earlier the statistics of the, the representation on the company side and that the people aren't in those leadership positions so the other these white execs who don't even know that it's a problem because of their privilege privilege or because they're just not surrounding themselves with that culture like you're saying they, they don't know so they don't know they're doing anything right or wrong but then yeah then now it swings can arguably swing the other way of well now we got to tick the boxes to to make it the hot button so we need to find that middle ground but we nobody knows what that is because we haven't had it yet. you know it's interesting <laughs> i when you mentioned colorblind casting and specifically people say People say, and storytellers saying, well, you know, you, you, you write your own experience and my experience is white. I mean, when I was when I was in theater and I would be, you know, I would be helping someone cast a show or I'd be writing my own work. Yeah, I mean, my own experience would be informing that and my own experience would be informing any scripts I wrote. But something that I was consciously aware of was that I try, though my experience uh, informed what I was writing, and maybe it was because I was an actor too. I recognized that the actor's experience would inform the character that I was that I was putting down on the page, and they would be the ones lifting it off the page. Yes. So I felt that if you're a if you're a writer and you put like this character is like a white person on the page for no reason other than it's just your experience is white, well then it's what you're directing. In it's your mind. what you're directing in your mind. If you're doing that, stop it because you're. <laughs> like you just john o'han smacking him stop, stop it. it you don't you don't need to if you let's a main character in a script i'm writing a story about myself uh in new glasgow nova scotia abercrombie video the whole nine yards but i don't need to put myself as white because that is putting a limitation on the possibilities of what someone could bring to that yeah. character yeah. and that's something that i've had to learn as a writer um that's something I had to learn as a writer because as I was writing, you know, different and in an audition room, different people of different ethnicities would walk in and they would not look like the character that was in my mind and they would deliver something that was or that was, you know, I wrote on the page and they would deliver a performance that was better than I than I came up with in my head. And it was a it was a lesson that I had to learn that if I just stop, if I just create characters, if I put my own experience on the page, but I don't try to specify what the, what the gender, the sexuality is like it, I, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of possibilities can come out of that, that I don't, I I could not foresee. It's so rare that color of the skin or the gender means so much to the character's journey that they can't just be whatever. There are some specific circumstances for sure, but I think the majority of characters we see can be anything. You're absolutely you know, right. There are, there are specific circumstances, but I do believe that a lot of racist bullshit gets thrown around from writers saying, well, it's my experience. And that's just bias. Subconscious And bias. that's just bias. Mm. But, and, but one thing I'd like to, 
I'd like to say that I feel like ties in like a lot of the points we've been making like is that you know a lot of the a lot of these a lot of the storytellers we're seeing you know to, like like at least from what I'm seeing among South Asian storytellers and all it episode directors casting directors we're see, I'm seeing we're seeing more of that in like TV shows like Netflix shows things like that you know comic yeah. books and even and uh you know even in ter- even in terms of film but not seeing enough of that in the video game industry which ties back to an earlier point that several of you made that that you know diversity within the industry is still not quite up to the level as it is in say television or stage theater or even comic books yeah, like it's great that we're getting more actual representation on the casting um although what was it uh uh clancy clancy brown is that his name the actor yeah abe was mentioning that clancy brown voices your parent regardless of what ethnicity you choose to represent whether you're white black and as good an actor as clancy brown is it's just they couldn't have gotten i mean it's costs obviously it comes down to that but i think they're doing a better job now of also the industry's called itself out on actors have called themselves out on in both film tv and in voice acting and everything just that the representation matters there as well and there's enough of those actors there to accurately play those characters so that's easier mm-hmm. to, I guess, approach than, yeah. say, finding the engineers that just aren't receiving the training. But I get exactly what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, which goes back to the point Dom and I were both making where, you know, rep we don't want representation just for representation's sake. I mean, we want the representation to be genuine. And like you said, we're only seeing that in, like, and I think I said it too, we're only seeing that in indie titles because those are the people who are like, well, I'm fed up with not being able to have my ideas achieved at the big budget company that I work at, I'm going to go make my own basketball court, taking my ball, going home. Um, and, you know, and then you see things like I, I finally got to, like, as I said, at the beginning of the episode, a couple of the games I talked about last year. One of them is Orion Legacy of the Koryodan, uh, which comes from Kiro Games Studios, which is Central Africa's first professional game studio. And, uh, you know, they got a decent, uh, publisher to publish them which gives them a bit of help and gets them out there it's a very rough game i'm um, very early on but it's also a really cool african-centric afrocentric uh, however you pre- pre- prefer to say that um fantasy world and i want to know more of it and it's it's very cool like they have some very cool ideas it's just clear development training all that's not quite there to make it all the most cohesive smooth experience it's a little janky to play uh, a little stiff in the controls, but like the combat system is really neat. You go into this really cool, like instanced kind of uh, fighting game, almost kind of thing with combos and stuff. But you still level up and get stronger and learn new moves as you go with your character, um, who is uh, the descendant of the Koryodan in this like African kingdom village thing. And it's it's so neat. I mean, I really wish um, <laughs> I won't be putting it in my review, but they have some like dope ass action sequences that i you you can't uh recreate yourself but they are really cool highlighting <laughs> like you have this um one woman who was your teacher 
and like you have this cool trade-off sequence where the two of you are fighting together and you your character like kicks a guy at her and she like suplexes him into the ground it's rad anyways there's some really cool uh comic book style action sequences and i think the rest of the game has been or like the further in the story they're now doing graphic novels and such but i would love to see this game get a double a or even triple a budget to see this concept come to life and then you've got as i mentioned riot games underrepresented founders program there's the wagadu chronicles which is a complete uh again african-centric uh inspired fantasy world there's a 5e dungeons and dragons book out there which i think is what they've been largely focusing on at the moment because they have an mmo they've been trying to that they have in development there's been a bit of concept art but it's been pretty quiet about it since like october 2020 so We'll see where that goes, but I do hope to see more from that. And then another one I mentioned was Treachery and Beatdown City, which, despite what Steam says, I don't know if it's as RPG enough for our coverage, but it's super fun to play. <laughs> so highly recommend it if you like your, um, <laughs> if you like Double Dragon and uh, like fight, uh, Final Fight and stuff like that. It plays very much like that, except like instanced little combat sequences. And you have, again, combat uh, combos that you can execute. I'm still very much in the tutorial phase where I'm learning all the different characters and how they fight against each and every type of enemy because there's different kind of strategies. There's a lot more strategy than your traditional beat-em-up. There's HP. you got stamina points. I'm not sure if you level up and stuff yet, if I've gotten far enough or not, so we'll see. But if there is more of that, then it counts, and I'm reviewing it. <laughs> uh, you're selling me it's, on it. It's really neat. It's super <laughs> fun. I mean, both of them, like, the stories are a little rough. I mean... With the legacy of the Coriodon, their uh, Central Africa is very French-based, so it is translated over to English, and some of it can be a bit rough and stilted. But overall, it's still telling a pretty compelling story. Um, I think it's just a two-person project for Treachery and Beatdown City. They're both one-man production companies, uh, New Challenger and Hurricane Works. Uh, like Sean Alexander Allen, who's at Hurricane, or sorry, with New Challenger, worked on like bigger game companies and then went off to kind of do his own thing. And I think now is working on some VR stuff. But with this one, it's very much supposed to be a black comedy and pokes fun at uh, a lot of the <laughs> just how the perceptions of his culture and everything. And uh, and yeah, you have to save uh, off brand Barack Obama, um, who's been kidnapped <laughs> and is being held by <laughs> ninja terrorists. So it's it's ridiculous and great and definitely has the odd moment where you're just like, okay, stop with the jokes, move the story along. But it's I still like it. I get what they're trying to do. It's very tongue in cheek. And there's another studio I want to know what they're doing because they look so professional and chic. Brassline Entertainment I mentioned last time around, and now they finally have a game with a title called Corner Wolves. But there's still nothing really about it except that it's going to be representative of Black and Latinx culture and putting them those protagonists at the forefront. Great. Their presentation as a company super chic, but what did, I don't there's not I don't know anything about them. <laughs> I want to know more. That's all I want. But either way, I recommend looking into all this stuff if you haven't. Um, it's it's super some pretty cool stuff, and I'm glad I finally made mm -hmm. the time to do it. Especially since stepping a bit further back from reviews at the site has allowed a bit more free time for some stuff like this, so it can be a slow roll <laughs> review project for me. And sorry, I was a lot of information very fast. I was very excited. I know, and all and all I'm thinking is, I am just so glad that that a lot of these stories are getting a chance to be told in some kind of medium. Like, I remember it was yeah, a year or two ago, 
I caught wind of uh, this uh, comic, this uh, comic called Malaika, Warrior Queen by Roy Okupe, who's a Nigerian immigrant, and and I was like, and this comic book was amazing. I mean, it was a historical fantasy that was that had a lot of nods to African history, and and it made me realize that this is the second largest continent in the world. And I know next to nothing about it. Uh, maybe it was the, you know, kind of Eurocentric education I got over the years. But the first thing I thought was, I need to, I need to learn more about, I need to learn more about this, about these places that I know nothing about. And, and that's when I started delving more into history and, and, and seeing how, like the, the Ming, how, you know, there was interconnection between Africa and China. You know, the Ming Dynasty was trading. There's and there was trade huh. going on between Africa and India, and, and all kinds of and all kinds of interesting stuff. Like, you know, some of the like eight like during, and I think one of the first universities in the world, I think, I think was co-established by like, you know, Africans and some of the uh, Indians who who came over back in ancient times. So it's like, so I, I'm, so you know what? I'm, I'm glad to see, you know, developers like Kiro Old Games, you know, saying, you know what? Why, why wait for Gandalf to come take me on an adventure? I'm going to go on my own adventure. And, uh, and I've, and I've heard, and I've heard rumblings that, that there are, um, that several indie South American developers are, uh, you know, trying their hand at kind of at um, turning their countries and their culture stories into into video game and into video game forms and things of that right. nature. And and I'm like, and I'm just like, this is this is cool. And and to and to go back to what Dom was saying earlier, how how like, you know working in gaming and and gaming culture as a whole was kind of frowned upon in Korea you know the idea of developing video games is not even a blip on the radar in India yet um there was a yet of course you watch any Marvel Marvel movie you see tons of Indian names in terms of the CG like effects people but I caught wind that a small Indian developer created this game called Raji, which is described as a kinder, gentler god of war, and and I'm like, cool. Yeah, which um, you know, Hillary talked about a bit on a past episode, and I don't know which number. John may or may not get to it before I know, but yeah, it's it <laughs> yeah. sounds rad. Sorry, carry on. Again, I'm just so I'm just so you know what? As, so while there's still a long ways to go in terms of all kinds of representation, whether we're talking ethnic, gender, age, whatever. The fact that I'm living in a time where there's steps in the in like the right direction is is great. Like you know, like seeing you know, for example, the like a Netflix show like The Unlisted, where the two main characters are two cool like Indian teenagers I'm like wow I wish I had that growing up but you know what my nephews 
get to have that. Or in terms of gaming, look at a game like Indivisible. Yes, it takes place in a complete fantasy world, but the protagonist, Ajna, definitely has some South Asian qualities in terms of her name and her look. I'm like, yay, my, you know, my nieces can kind of play. It's like, wow, this is something my nieces could play and they can kind of see themselves in that. Yeah, here's a bat. Here, here's a badass girl who, you know, kind of has a similar look and a name as me. Yeah, that's important. And so I'm just glad that, you know what? Let's again, do we have a ways to go? Absolutely. But am I glad to that I'm alive to see that there are, you know, steps being made in the right at steps being made in a in a positive direction, at least towards representation of my ethnic group? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's a beautiful way to phrase that sentiment. <laughs> Incidentally, uh episode one ninety six. Thank you. I thought that's what it was, but I didn't trust myself. 196. Trying some new things. There it is. Good advice there. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I guess that brings us wrapping around to a bit of a close. I mean, obviously this... We could go on. Yeah. And well, I mean, I know that we are working on a representation for RPG Fan. Uh, there are no shortage of uh, of RPG fans of color on uh, YouTube and uh, elsewhere. And, uh, like, two of my favorite, uh, Player Essence, a gentleman named OJ, uh, does really, really, really great wrap-ups of news, uh, uh, and, uh, and huge RPG, uh, huge RPG fan, no affiliation with the site RPG fan, but, uh, and I mean, still, one of my favorite YouTubers is Pelvic Gaming, uh, Lady Pelvic. She is so damn good. Um, she releases... Tons of reviews. She just released one uh, for Swickedon 4, which had me doubled over in laughter. It was very funny. It was very, it was sharp. Uh, so yeah, those are two people that, if anyone's out there, check them out, because they're awesome. Does anyone else have anyone? Just curious. Um, Yeah. Uh, I actually came across his channel recently, but Alex McCalla does... Um, he's a professional music composer. And he does, like, uh, remixes of, like, music OSTs. And the thing is, they're they're all great. They all slap. <laughs> and, yeah, and he's black. And um, I look for Alex McCullough, and there's a guy wearing American, American uh, sweatsuit pants golfing on a golf course. This is not him. Yeah. <laughs> 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 He does great re- music remixes, and I, his my favorite video of his is he has a, he has like a montage of like a bunch of different music OSTs with um, the vibing cat meme just like splat in the center of the screen. So it, it's it's a fun watch just listening to these cool remixes and also having oh, the cat just bounce the beat. <laughs> So. Oh, music producer and composer <laughs> who dreams of scoring a Final Fantasy game someday. Awesome. I am uh, subscribing right now. Cool. Neil, anything that you want to recommend? Uh, I got nothing. <laughs> it's okay. Not all of us stream through YouTube or much else. But you recommended some pretty choice shows, though. I won't lie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I don't, uh, I know my searches that I know the, speaking of music, the, the composer on the Wagadu Chronicles is doing, um, has been live streaming or at least recording, um, their create, their music creation sets and their process and stuff. So there's that. If you looked at their, uh, I think at their Facebook and their Twitter account. Uh, and then of course, shout out to our man geek, uh, G E A K, uh, Quentin Williams, who, uh, briefly worked with us at RPG fan, um, whether or not we still work with him, he does great content on YouTube. Go check him out. He's great to listen to and, and get his thoughts on the games. And he's just, he's a fight guy. Cool. So yeah, uh, again, brings us to a close of something that we probably could talk for several more episodes on, get several more people on. Uh, one of these days I would love to talk with some of the folks from some of these studios or get some other content creators. Uh, my, my bucket list is to talk to Mega Ran, uh, and hopefully, uh, someday he'll, he'll talk back to us. <laughs> But, and, um, yeah, again, there's just, there's so much out there to still educate ourselves on. And like Neil said, it's great to see that it's happening finally. And we've all said that it's a slow process though. It's a long way to go. And hopefully conversations like this are steps in the right direction. That's, that's my hope, you know? And uh, again, I appreciate, uh, both, uh, having you, Neil and Dom on. I appreciate you both being, again, honest and generous with your past and your stories and experiences and uh and Jono, thanks for just being here man and helping to facilitate and asking them thoughtful questions I, thank you for having thank you <laughs> don't really know what to say about that thank you greg <laughs> yeah welcome thank you um, illustrious one yeah uh, <laughs> that's what you say to me uh at any rate um before we wrap things up I, this episode is coming hot on the heels of some pretty big news that has been dropped on us lately. I mean, the Nintendo Direct gave us a bunch of cool stuff like Project Triangle Square, no, Project Triangle Strategy, there we go, um, and uh, and plenty of other games in there. Then there's the State of Play, which gave us a whole bunch of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, what was it, Jono, that someone on the site uh, said? Was, was West, I don't know if it was Wes. Somebody, somebody... Or maybe it was Quentin. Was it the Final Fantasy VII Cinematic Universe thing? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Trying to do the Final Fantasy 15 thing, but maybe it was something that people actually want to play. Yep, they're doing yeah, Don't they're you. doing a a D-make of the remake, which I think is just amazing. <laughs> yep, in the same vein of uh yeah, how they did with 15. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. And then uh yeah, so like it's hard not to be into that and hoping that we'll get um what was it Neil you're saying you hope for a little bit better uh, showing from possibly uh, due to Cerberus? Oh, definitely. I would like to see that remastered and maybe spruced up a bit. I'm not going to lie. it's As much as everyone hates on it, it's a guilty pleasure for me. I enjoyed due to Cerberus for what it was. <laughs> I really liked it. It was fun and so dumb in its story and bad in so many ways, but also just rad. Ugh, anyways. <laughs> Um, what do you, and then I guess, yeah, there's the, the, then of course the big Pokemon news, which I haven't really watched yet, but I know we got this cool open world Pokemon now finally, like truly what we wanted to see from Sword and Shield. And I guess again, as we've talked on episodes before, maybe they're learning and putting the next steps into place for a true next gen Pokemon experience. We got remakes of the, uh, the classics. Brilliant Diamond and Shining and, Pearl. Uh, yes, which have awful acronyms, uh, as our fearless leader pointed out uh gotta get that shiny p and then um yeah the, the game that various other yeah and the, the game that everyone really cares about no one cares about pokemon legends or that what people care about is new pokemon snap 
Uh, yeah, that's what yeah. the that's what so the down. people want, and by people I mean that's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I really want to brush my teeth. <laughs> oh yes, Pokemon Smile. <laughs> but, it goes hand in hand with Snap. You got to be photo ready. <laughs> <laughs> but man, it's about time they released a sequel to Pokemon Snap. I know. Everyone loves Pokemon Snap. I don't know. Uh, is there anyone out there who doesn't like it? Who played it like on the? They just don't like it when Pokemon Snap. <laughs> when Pokemon Snap, it's just a tale about an unhinged Pikachu. <laughs> it's just like uh, <laughs> it's just like uh, Sinnoh's funniest home videos, and it's just like <laughs> p- p- Pokemon that just can't take it anymore. I mean, can you when blame Pokemon them? Pokemon Snap, <laughs> right? Uh, um, so yeah, before we wrap things up, quick hits uh, for those of us who've been in on the news of it all. Uh, Dom, what's your, what's your favorite thing from all these announcements? Which one of these various games that have been thrown at us are you most excited to see? Pokemon Snap. Yeah, Pokemon Snap probably looks, is the most interesting, I feel. Especially since it's, it's what, like, the first game came out like 22 years ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I'm so old. It's interesting. I, I feel like I'd be pretty excited to see, um, how they've, how they've changed. There's so many more Pokemon now. True. So many more photo opportunities. Like developed. Uh, developed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I'm not sure how to phrase it. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, and Neil, same question to you. What are you most excited for from all of this? Aside from Pokemon Snap. <laughs> you know, like, you know... Like everyone else, I'm just, I'm just curious wh- what Square Enix plans to do with what we call the FF7 cinematic universe. I mean, just <laughs> because it, there's just, because it already has such a rich history, you know, like we said, between, you know, FF7, the core game, Crisis Core, Dirgis Cerberus, uh, the Advent Children movie, and and all that. I'm like, what? How are they? There's just so much rich lore from then. What? I don't. I'm just. How are they gonna make sense out of everything? It's just. (laughs) It's almost like. The whole everything that's going on to create this is is like as epic an adventure as the adventure itself. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's always uh, we'll see if they can do it better than they tried with fifteen. Let's just hope. <laughs> well, they're working uh, with better material. Um, yes. What do I? What am I looking forward to? Uh, based on the announcements the last couple weeks. Um, do you want to know what? I'm one of those people who missed out on Skyward Sword, which is dumb because I had a Wii and I loved I loved uh, Zelda. I just never ended up playing it. So yeah, I'm the oh man, the Skyward Sword HD remake, uh, not even a remake, remaster. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. Um, in the same vein because it looks like a Zelda like, which means we may or may not cover it, depend on what com- depends on what comes out the next couple of months. Uh, Kenna Bridge of Spirits looks astoundingly gorgeous. Um for the PlayStation 5 and 4, I guess. 
But honestly, I'm I still haven't played the Final Fantasy VII remake yet, so. Uh, but you got what you guess, want. It's coming to PS5. Yeah, I guess like guess what I'm going to be doing on June 10th, and that's I'm going to be playing Final Fantasy VII remake. Yep, and it's going to look good. That's for sure. Yeah, it's going to have textures uh, this yeah. time. <laughs> I don't know. I've been I I was feeling it yesterday after the announcements. I went back to it and. I was I, I've already put like three hours into the game and I'm barely like actually anywhere story wise. I'm just starting to do like the merc jobs to build up my rep with Tifa running around town. But I've just been like lollygagging and looking at everything and it's it looks good. Whatever I get though. It, there's definitely like you, there's some seams here and there, but it's 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 a spectacular game. And now on PS5, it's going to be just mind blowing. We hope um, for myself. Uh, yeah, like the Skyward Sword's going to look so pretty in HD, which it deserved from the first Ugh. they always try to push so hard nintendo my gosh um legend of mana is like hands down thing i'm most excited for i've been wanting to see that game remastered and now i'm getting it so i am uh, i am here for that uh and triangle strategy project underlying rpg from squaresoft yeah we'll see if the project <laughs> lasts i remember project octopath traveler was the original name god i loved that I, I wish they kept Project. And then they're just like, Octopack. <laughs> yeah, right. And then it's just, no, nope, uh, let's just stick with this name. Sure. It's the best It's the best we got, apparently. Yep. It's a weird, weird name. Uh, anyways, uh, again, thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you like listening to us, you might like listening to our other podcasts, like Retro Encounter, which does game journals. Uh, Dom was on that one. So, you know, go listen to old Dom stuff. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, We've got, of course, Rhythm Encounter back with a vengeance. Uh, you can go listen to, uh, I guess, with uh, the next one coming up because the release of Bravely Defaults just upon us for Bravely Default 2. We have a Bravely Default episode that I think Jono was on. I was. It was a great episode. It, it, it had some great music. Solosi is shaking himself apart with excitement for the game. <laughs> yep. And I cannot blame him. I'm excited, too. We got a copy for video review, so I'm glad to be able to dive into that as well. Super grateful for uh, my time here at the site, that's for sure. And then, of course, we have our fellows, Eric and Hat, who moonlighted with us uh, last episode of uh, the Game of the Year podcast. Uh, and they have the Phoenix Edge podcast, where they are keeping up with current events, and I'm sure they have plenty to say about all the reveals that just came out. So go check out their latest episode as well. You can email us at podcast.rpgfan.com to complain, commiserate, tell us all the good things, whatever you need to talk to us about. Um, sometimes you're just trying to sell me marketing material. Thanks, spammers. Either way, uh, we'll take it. I mean, we won't take it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the message. I won't do anything with it. At any rate, uh, you can find us on Twitch, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, Twitter, of course. And uh, otherwise, that's that's it. That's that's everything, RPG fan, you really need to know. I've been your host. These are my lovely guests. For myself, for Jono, for Neil, for Dom. Thank you so much for listening, and bye now. <laughs>